0: Good morning church family. I would like to begin my time this morning by thanking the so many of you that helped us uh, yesterday as we hosted the first annual Hampton Roads Pillar Network uh, conference for our first go at this, the eight churches that make up uh, the Pillar Network here in Hampton Roads. We, We thought it was just a smashing success. The pastors of these churches have all expressed incredible gratitude to our congregation. Uh, We had about 250 people registered for the event yesterday, uh, came, listened to teaching from about 9.30 9.30 in the morning to about 4.30 in the afternoon as we considered our shared mission of making disciples uh, together. So if you had anything to do with that, setting up for it, helping with the meal, cleaning up afterwards, thank you uh, for serving the churches of our network. Thank you for coming and being a part of that. And if you were unable to, and we recognized that it was a long day, you had other things. Some of you, it was a child care issue, which we're still trying to figure out the best way to facilitate uh, meeting those kinds of needs we recorded all four of the primary talks. And and I just want to commend them to you, our church members. We need you to listen to those. They were very important for who we are as a church. We say our mission is to make disciples that make disciples. And Uh, pastors Phil Newton and Mike McKinley our guest speakers yesterday uh, talked directly at that point for four hours and so um, in a few days once we have all of those things posted online uh, we'll email all of our church members and I would encourage you uh, just as your pastor would you take some time over the next week or two uh, when you get the chance to listen to those I'm going to go back and listen to all of them I can promise you they will be edifying to you today's sermon Is different. Today's sermon and next week's sermon are different. Let me tell you why. First, let's talk about what we believe and value as a congregation. We have six core beliefs, six core values. Our first core value affirms, among other things, that we value expositional preaching in our corporate gatherings. That means, if you're new with us, typically the question that we ask on Sunday morning when I rise or one of our other elders rise to present God's word is, what does a specific text say, usually in a series through an entire book of the Bible, and why does it matter? Well, today and next Sunday, we're not going to ask that question. We are going to ask the question, what does the whole Bible have to say about a specific subject and why does it matter? We do not do this often here. I'm calling this sermon uh, Excursus One. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. Well, first, I use the word excursus because my small group has developed a hand signal, there it is, for when I use big words in sermons. And so that's for them and because I refuse to use the word topical sermon Uh, An excursus, let me define it for you, is a digression from the main point of an academic work in order to discuss or explain a theme that is in that text. And that's what we're doing. We're going to talk today about church membership. Next week, we're going to talk about church leadership. And these two sermons are going to help us in our series in 1 Corinthians. These are still very much in this series But when we move into chapters 5 and 6 and 9 and 11 and 12 and 14, having a base understanding, a foundational understanding of church membership and church leadership is going to help us understand what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and what the Word of God is saying to us. Additionally, As the members of our church are well aware, for the last three months, we have been discussing together some recommended constitution and bylaw changes from our elders concerning how we admit and dismiss members and to the office and function of elder and deacon. And so because of that, our elders just thought, taking a couple of Sunday mornings here in the context of this series through 1 Corinthians, to explain those things, to think well together about what the whole Bible has to say on the subject of church membership and church leadership would be helpful in the context of our discussion as we come to these decisions together. I want to begin by saying that normally in sermons I will often quote other pastors, biblical scholars, commentaries. This is a lengthy sermon and so I'm just going to say from the outset I am indebted, greatly indebted to the work of many pastors and authors who have come before me. I read, I've read a lot of books on this subject. I have listened to a lot of sermons from pastors you know and pastors you likely do not know. I am indebted to them. Nothing I am about to say is original to me, so that is me citing everyone. Don't think that I came up with any of this. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now for your help. As the gathered body of saints that is Nansman River Baptist Church, the members that make up this congregation, I am so grateful for them, for their love and encouragement, for their passion for your word and their passion for your gospel and its proclamations to the end of the earth. Thank you, God, for the way in which we worship you and the way in which we celebrate new life in Christ through baptism, for the way in which we approach your scripture most faithfully. But we recognize we need your help. I recognize today that I need your help because we are doing something different today. Would you guard me as expository preaching so often does just by nature from standing on a soapbox this morning? Would you help me to be clear with our church about what the scriptures say as it relates to church membership? Would you help us to put aside maybe what we have thought or what we have practiced? Instead, let us hold fast to the very word of God. Let it instruct us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The main idea of today's sermon is that covenant church membership is an essential practice of a healthy local church and a vital component of the Christian life. I'm calling it covenant church membership because that is the language that we use as a congregation. We've used that language. I asked some of our long-serving lay elders this week to help me with the timeline. We've used that language at least since 2007 in this church, so this isn't necessarily a new idea for our congregation. So we're using the term covenant church membership because this is the idea that, that members of the church covenant together, that they agree together to believe things and to do things and to hold one another accountable to those things, and that by participating in a church that that practices covenant church membership, it helps our church to be healthy. And it serves as a vital part of the individual Christian's life. So this is both corporate and it is individual. From the outset, we need to recognize that this idea is unpopular in some, you may say, many Christian circles. It is as unpopular as a sermon, for instance, on the sanctity of human life or on the biblical definition of marriage would be in some secular circles. There are Christians today who will not like what I have to say. This has not always been the way, however. For instance, the Charleston Baptist Association, the first association of Baptist churches in the southern part of the United States, in 1774 meaning it predates the United States of America, published a document known as, known as a Summary of Church Discipline, and in it they define a church thusly. A particular gospel church consists of a company of saints incorporated by a special covenant into one distinct body, meeting together in one place for the enjoyment of fellowship with each other and with Christ, their head, in all his institutions, to their mutual edification and the glory of God through the Spirit. Now, we don't speak like that anymore, but when we hear things like that, we our, our hearts should be gladdened to, to know that historically the church has held to the biblical idea of covenant church membership. Now, when I te- teach on doctrine on Wednesday nights, which is my primary, the primary way that I teach on Wednesday nights, this is actually going to be very similar to what I do on Wednesdays. I will often ask the question, "Well, if that's what people used to believe, well, well, what happened? Like, wh- wh- why don't we see that all that often in churches in Western Evangelical Christianity today? Well, mid-century revivalism, the late twentieth-century movement known as seeker-sensitive church growth movement, and the mega church mega multi-site church movement of this century have worked to devalue church membership to the point either intentionally or unintentionally to the point where what was once common a commonplace understanding of church membership is now seen as an extremist position there are many in our world today many christians that we would affirm our Christians that are a part of Christian churches that would listen to the sermon and believe that it is extreme, that would look at the way our church approaches church membership and think we are crazy for doing so. Even amongst our own tribe of Christians here in the United States that is known as the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in the world, that claims some 47,000 churches, some 15 million members, those statistics aren't really accurate because two-thirds of people that claim to be Southern Baptist aren't gathered this morning with the church they claim to be a member of. 10 million of our 15 million Southern Baptists aren't at their church today. Now, yes, some of them are homebound, some of them are sick, maybe some of them are traveling, but are 10 million of them? No. They have long since walked away from the idea of being covenanted together with a local church for a specific purpose. Even in this church's history, my, my goal isn't to preach against what other churches are doing. I want us to see what the Bible says that we should do, and so we should even think our own, about our own history. For most of the history of this church, let's be honest, we didn't take church membership all that seriously. It wasn't until about 2007 that this church began to think about membership in a covenant sense, that the church developed a church covenant. And in the years following that, about seven or eight years following that, didn't really hold anyone to that covenant. So in 2014, this church had, this is a true number, 1,602 members, 75% of which were not involved in any meaningful way whatsoever in this congregation. 1,602. Praise God that in 2014, before I got here, I don't get to claim any of this, I showed up in the summer of 2015, but in 2014, this church, this congregation began to take serious church membership and began to do the slow and very painful work of determining who was actually a part of the church to the point now where there are more people gathered on this property today than we actually have members, and that's the way that it should be. We should expect that our church gathers and that our children who are not yet a part of the church and our friends and some visitors that we have invited would gather with us that there would be more of us on a Sunday morning than we actually have in membership. It's because we Think about membership, I believe, in a biblical sense. And so let's see what the Bible has to say about church membership. Number one, the overwhelming case for covenant church membership. I do believe this. I use that word overwhelming on purpose because I believe that the testimony of scripture from beginning to end is overwhelming that this is the way that a church should consider membership as we covenant together. First, all New Testament authors, all New Testament authors, Assumed followers of Christ would engage in meaningful membership in a local church. Now, let me start with this. Our fifth core belief, I've referenced our core beliefs and core values. In our fifth core belief, we affirm, among other things, that the church is both universal and local and that all believers are placed by the Holy Spirit into the universal church upon coming to faith in Christ. This is true. So we can say that the thief on the cross and the Ethiopian eunuch were both Christians even though they did not join a local church. But the thief on the cross and the Ethiopian eunuch are not intended as normative for the practice of the church. The, the, the testimony of the New Testament authors as they, as they write affirm the existence of both the invisible universal church, which all Christians are placed into when they believe in Christ, but their writings almost exclusively exist within the context of, not the universal church, but local churches. For instance, the letters of Paul. If we just take them in order. Romans. He addresses all those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. First and 2 Corinthians is written to the church of God that is in Corinth. Galatians is written to the churches, plural, multiple churches in Galatia. It was a region. Ephesians is written to the saints of Ephesus. Philippians is written to all the saints of Christ who are at Philippi. Colossians are written to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, along with their elders and deacons. First and second second Thessalonians is written to the church of the Thessalonians. Was this just a Pauline idea? No, other epistles as well. James, for instance, writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, that's a Metaphor for the local church. Peter writes to five local churches, to those who he calls elect exiles in the dispersion Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Even the book of Revelation from the Apostle John is written to the seven churches that are in Asia. And by the way, those are real, actual places that had real, actual local churches. Revelation was written in the context of seven local churches. The author of Hebrews tells us to not neglect the meeting, the meeting together as had become the habit of some, but to encourage one another. He later says, the author of that book later says in the 13th chapter that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Who are they giving an account for? They're not giving an account for the universal church, but for the local church. The entirety of the New Testament is written in the context of the local church. It's written to churches that had problems. It was written to churches that that, that needed doctrinal correction. They were, they were written to, to churches that needed encouragement. They were written to churches that, needed persecu- that were under persecution. They were written to churches with specific leaders and specific members in specific locations. If Paul was writing today... And we needed a letter, I don't know if you've seen this, you know, people have said online, well, if Paul was writing today to the Church of America, no, that's not what Paul would write. He would write to Nansman River Baptist Church if we needed a letter. They wrote these things in the context of the local church and so we can, yes, affirm that all who are in faith in Christ are in the invisible universal church, but it's invisible because we can't see it. But that all members... Are all Christians should, by the testimony of the New Testament, find themselves covenanted together with a local group of believers that is a local church because it was only within the local churches that they would have received any of these letters from Christ's apostles. Number two, the descriptions of and prescriptions for the New Testament churches demonstrate a commitment to a distinct gathering of covenant church members. So it's not just that these letters and writings were written in the context of the local church, but they actually describe the local church and they prescribe the local church. And this is a good moment for us to think about the way that we read the Bible. Some of the things that we read in the New Testament are known as descriptive. They're telling us things that happened. So they're describing events for us and we're not necessarily supposed to go out and repeat those events Verbatim, It's not that we're supposed to do exactly what they did in those situations, but they're describing what happened and that we learned from them. And then some of the writings of the New Testament are prescriptive, meaning they're prescribing things that should happen in the local church. And because they were prescribing them then, they are prescribing them now, and we should do now what they did then. And so when we're reading in the New Testament, we should ask the question, are, is this descriptive or prescriptive? But both the descriptions of and the prescriptions for the New Testament church demonstrate a commitment to a distinct gathering, a, a covenant body of members. Let's look at it from the very beginning. If, if you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're very used to turning in our Bibles somewhere. Some of you are like, you haven't told me to open my Bible yet. Well, we can do that. Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, what the what, what's, what Luke is recording for us is is the story of the church that's what acts is it's called the acts of the apostles but really it's the story of the fulfillment of acts 1 8 you'll be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and the ends of the earth and that's the thesis statement for the book of acts and it starts in jerusalem it goes to judea samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth jesus ascends to the father in acts 1 in Acts 2, the apostles are gathered in the upper room, they're praying, the Holy Spirit descends on them on, a, on a, a Jewish feast known as Pentecost, and they go outside and they start preaching. We heard about this yesterday and from one of our speakers that the very first thing the New Testament church did was, was preach, and that's pretty important for us because it's something we do every time that we gather. And they preach the gospel of Jesus, In Acts 2, Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus and a whole lot of people get saved. Look at verse 41. And those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's an incredible, that's an incredible sermon, right? Like 3,000 people came to faith in this one day, this one spirit-filled sermon from the apostle Peter. But here's what I find fascinating. They counted them. And they didn't just count them to be like, oh, look at all of these people. No, no, no. They actually counted them. They knew who came to Christ. It mattered that there was a number of people who were saved and baptized. It it mattered who these people were. Now, we kind of progress. The church does some things. There's some arrests and some convictions and some other stuff. And the church is kind of growing. And when we get to Acts chapter 6, you can turn over there too if you want, Acts chapter 6. What, what happens is the church has grown to the point in Jerusalem, it's really only in Jerusalem at this point, I mean, it's starting to spread a little bit, but it's centered in Jerusalem. There's kind of one church, and it's being led by the apostles, and, and, a, and a disagreement arises amongst them. They, they start debating over how are we supposed to care for widows that don't speak the same language as us. That's, that's what's happening. There were, there were Greek-speaking widows who, who weren't being cared for as well as the Hebrew-speaking widows. And they're like, what should we do? And you know what they do in Acts chapter 6? This is incredible. They call a members' meeting. That's what Acts 6 is. It's a members' meeting. They're like, business meetings aren't in the Bible. Yeah, they are. Acts 6. It's not the only one, by the way. Acts 6, they call a members meeting, like, we have a problem. And they go to the apostles, and they're like, we have a problem. Now, there are not elders and deacons yet in the church. There's just apostles, and the apostles are like, well, we're preaching the word and dedicating ourselves to prayer, so you people need to handle this. So what you're going to do is you're going to select some people, right? Look at, verse, look at verse 3 of Acts 6. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of the wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Who are they to pick out? Where where are they to pick these guys out? From among you. That word is gonna show up a lot in these verses that we're gonna look at. From among you. You notice they didn't say, now I want you to go out into Jerusalem and I want you to find the best administrators you can find. I want you to go out and find the best accountants. I want you to go out and find the best bakers because we gotta feed people. I want you to go out and find these best people you can find in Jerusalem and task them with the problem. No, the apostle said, look around, look around, who in here can do this? Because we don't have time to do it. So y'all do it, take care of it. And you know what they did? They picked some guys, they prayed for them and they set them off on the course of doing it because they were a distinct gathering. They knew who was there. They knew who was amongst them. They were numbered and named. Now, if we just think about the very book that we're in, First Corinthians And and there's lots of places in 1 Corinthians this is going to matter. But in December, Merry Christmas, I'm preaching on church discipline. (laughs) From 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, it's going to be some rough Christmas sermons, okay? And in 1 Corinthians 5, dealing with great sin that's in the midst of the church, the Apostle Paul instructs them thusly, starting in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. You notice the words among you there again. And there is this also this language of inside the church and outside the church. That, that even this congregation in Corinth that had so many things wrong, they at least knew who was of them and who wasn't. They had them numbered. They knew who they were. In the next chapter, which is also a church discipline chapter, in the first chapter, there's children in here, I'm not even going to name what was going on in chapter five. In chapter six, they were suing each other. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? He says, Don't go to the courts, don't go to outside people. Is there nobody inside the household of God? Is there nobody among you? Who could look at one person that's among you that has a disagreement with another person that's among you and settle the dispute? Well, Paul is actually looking back on something Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 18, which we're going to consider more fully in another point. But I just want you to see what he says in verse 17. If he's talking about a person, a Christian who is in sin and is refusing to listen. And there's a whole process in Matthew 18, and by the time you get to 17, he says this: If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The church there is the word ecclesia. That's the most. That's the Greek word that's that's translated into church. It literally means gathering, assembly. Those who are among you, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, the gathering let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this isn't a Pauline idea. Like Paul didn't create this. Jesus instructed the church to do this and to think this way, that we should know who is a part of us so that if we do have need of discipline, we can discipline them. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul addresses, I think, probably the same man that he's addressing in Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, when he writes this in verses 6 through 8 of 2 Corinthians 2 For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. What's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, Have a members meeting and discipline this guy. And they had a members meeting and discipline this guy. And then between 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, the guy repents. And Paul says the punishment of the majority, which means they actually had a vote. The the majority made a decision and they kicked the guy out of the church because he would not repent of his sin, but at some point he repents of his sin and Paul's like, okay, great, bring him back in, reaffirm him, make him a member again because he's repented of his previous sin." Maybe you say, well, does this only matter for church discipline? Is, is church membership only a matter of church discipline? Well, absolutely not. We could turn, for instance, to the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. You say, what does that have to do with church membership? Well, here's what it does. 1 Timothy 5, there's an issue in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is. Paul's writing to him. And here's the issue. Just like they had in Acts 6, there were some widows that needed care. And some of them were young women and they were busybodies and Paul addresses that. But some of them were older women. They were not going to be, they were not of the age that they were going to get married again in that culture. And he says, if these are actually committed women, put them on a list. That's what he say. put them on a list and care for them. Have spe- give special attention to these women because in that culture it would have been very difficult for them to care for themselves and the church needs to do that if their families are unable or unwilling. That's, that's what's happening here. Now, is Paul saying you need to go out into Ephesus and find all of the widows? And care for them. No. He's saying you need to look in the church. That the church cares for the church. Now does that mean we don't care for people outside of here? Absolutely not. We absolutely care for people outside of here. But do we do that in the same way that we care for people inside of here? No. Because we have specific instructions. So who were these widows? These were widows who were members of the church. Who needed care. I'm going to end this section with this: just one encouragement. For those that say, well, pastor, I, you know, local church, that's all fine and good. But as long as I'm a part of the universal church, that's, that's all that matters. Listen to me. Even the universal church speaks to the local church. Because in Revelation 7, we see the, 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 the universal church, the invisible church, made visible where John sees in his revelation after this, behold, I looked and a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, people, languages, standing before the throne, before the lamb. That's the universal church clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Even the universal church exists at the end in a specific location gathered all together as a body. And so in this life, on this side of Jordan, what we should do is we should reflect that reality by how we covenant together as a local church. Next, and you say, was well, this just a New Testament idea? No, the practice of, church, of covenant church membership is a continuation of the Old Testament example of God's people being distinct from those around them. Now, I don't have passages of scripture in your notes. I'm just gonna run through some of these examples and there are really dozens of them. I just, let me give you just some from the book of Genesis. Can we just stay the first half of Genesis and see how many times we see this? In Genesis three, Adam and Eve were inside the garden and God placed them outside the garden. In Genesis four and five, Moses contrasts for us the line of Cain who were outside and the line of Seth who would ultimately fulfill, from him, would ultimately fulfill God's promise. In Genesis 7, maybe the most important one, right? Noah and his family were inside the ark and everybody else was outside the ark. Genesis 10 and 11 contrast the line of Ham and Japheth, two of the sons of Noah, who would populate the world with the line of Shem, who would populate the people of God. Genesis 25 contrasts the line of Ishmael, with the true line of promise, Isaac. And then Isaac would have two sons and that promise would pass not to the first, but to the second. Just in the first 25 chapters, the first half of Genesis, we see half a dozen examples of lines drawn, distinct lines drawn where we say these people are part of the covenant and these people are not. People that... that. Don't adopt this understanding of church membership that maybe you're in here and you're like, I just really struggle with this. My question to you would be this. How do you read the Old Testament book of Numbers, for instance? Do you know the entire book of Numbers is about who is part of us and who is not? That's why they call it Numbers, because they numbered people. And you get to that part in your Bible reading plan and you're like, why do I care that there were this many of that group and this many of this tribe and this many living in this land? Because they numbered them and them numbering them then may mean that we should number people now. So it's not just Paul. It's not just the New Testament. It's the entire Bible that, that provides overwhelming evidence for us. You say, okay, well, that's what the Bible says. Why does it matter? Well, there are extraordinary benefits of covenant church membership. I don't want us to see several. Number one. Covenant church membership allows Christians to display the biblical metaphors for God's people most clearly. Covenant church membership allows Christians to display the biblical metaphors for God's people most clearly. The Bible gives us some unique metaphors for the local church. And by being a part of, in a covenantal way, a local church, we are able then in our lives to display those metaphors. Let's look at some. We already saw one a few weeks ago in our series here in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter three. Do you not know that you are God's temple? That you is plural, by the way. It is talking to the church and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural, the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, the church, are that temple. So one of the metaphors for the church in the New Testament is the temple, a building, the building of God. And it is not the brick and stone that make up this building it is the flesh and blood that make up our membership the bible also uses the metaphor of the body later in first corinthians chapter 12 we will get to this next year do you know do you not know that you are god no sorry that's not that's first corinthians 3 1 Corinthians chapter twelve, look at verse look at verse twelve. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So so it is in the church. And you skip down to verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So one of the metaphors for the church is a body. And by the way, if I were to ask you about your body today, you could pick out your hand from someone else's hand. You could pick out your foot from someone else's foot because they belong to your body. The same is true about God's church, that we should be able to say, this person is with us and this person is not because they have covenanted together with the local church. Number three is the family. Galatians chapter six. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. For those of you that didn't like the way that I explained 1 Timothy five, Galatians six explains it that very way. We don't have the same level of love and care for people outside the church that we do for people inside the church. It doesn't mean that we don't love and care for people outside the church, but we have a special familial love for the members of this church so if you're a guest here maybe you've been a guest here for years I'm glad you're here I love you I'm going to speak to you on multiple occasions in this sermon but you need to know something as much as I love you I don't love you as much as I do the people in this church that are actually members of this church because I'm instructed in scripture to love them specially Just like I love Christy and Brody and AJ in a special way because they're my family. I love my church family in that same familial way, in a special way than we do our community. We still love our community, but we love our church because they're our family. Number two, covenant church membership is the context in which Christians can live out the one another commands of scripture most faithfully You say, what is a one another command? Well, Romans chapter 12 highlights this for us. We see three of them just in two verses. In verse 10 of Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. That's that familial love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Then in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. So in two verses in Romans 12, we have three what are known as one another commands. You say, why is this important? Because there are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. 59. Some of them, for instance, love one another, repeated 16 times in the New Testament. 59 unique commands. For instance, love one another, be devoted to one another. Honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, submit to one another, consider others better than yourselves, look to the interests of one another, bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another towards love and good works, show hospitality to one another, employ the gifts that God has given you for the benefit of one another, clothe yourself in humility towards one another, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another, and then there's some negative commands, do not lie to one another, stop passing judgment on one another, stop biting and devouring one another, stop provoking and envying one another, don't slander one another, don't grumble against one another. We do these 59 commands in the context of the local church because Romans 12.5 tells us that we are members one of another. This is a great example for us. We did many of these things in a general sense yesterday as eight local churches gathered together and we encouraged one another, we loved one another, we showed hospitality to one another, but we do so in a much more complete and specific sense when we gather here on Sunday mornings. If you're not a member of a local church, how are you obeying the 59 one another commands? I don't think you can I don't think you can do so in in the sense that the Bible instructs us to do so. We are supposed to be in covenant with one another so that we can keep the Bible's one another commands towards one another. Number three, covenant church membership helps elders to shepherd the flock of God most intently. I'm going to talk about elders next week, so I'm only going to be here just briefly, but let me give you one passage that we will probably consider again next week. 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partake in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is, here it is again, among you. And it tells them how to do it, how to be an example for the flock. And and, and when the chief shepherd appears in verse 4, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Hebrews, as we saw earlier, tells us that elders will have to give an account for how we do this. And we can only give an account if we know who we are giving an account for. So the elders of this church, and by the way, I would say this is true about every pastor that claims the title elder, overseer, pastor. We are not called to pastor the universal church. We're called to pastor the local church. There is no earthly head of the universal church. Christ is our chief shepherd. This is why we don't look to Rome. We look to 2896 Bridge Road <laughs> because this is where we gather and this is where our elders are. This is what it means for us as the local church to, to, to know who we are so that our elders can lead us well. I'm gonna go over in the sermon, it's just happening. So we're all just gonna lean into it. You ready? Let me, let me illustrate this for you. My notes it said you can cut this if you but if you don't have time but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I, most of you know I've spent a lot of time over the last I don't know ten to fifteen years in Africa. I love going to Africa. I'm going in December to be with our church plant in Rwanda. But uh, m- most of my early experience in Africa was was in West Africa, uh, in countries like Mali and uh, Niger and Nigeria, uh, where farming is major and, and where raising livestock is, is, is a major source of income for people, particularly in villages. And these, these livestock just roam free. I mean, they really just do. There they are sheep and goats, which by the way, look almost identical in Africa, uh, which is a biblical metaphor. We don't have time to explore, but they, they're just everywhere. And you're sitting in these villages all day and you're just seeing sheep and goats like wander around. So I finally, we're, we're traveling with this local pastor and local translator. And I'm like, hey, what's up with the sheep and goats just walking around? what keeps me from just taking this one and us having a barbecue? He went, you do something to that sheep and watch how fast the owner of that sheep shows up. I said, how do they know? He said, oh, brother, they know. (laughs) You may not think they know. It may not look like they know, but not only do they know, but every person in this village knows who every one of these sheep and goats belongs to. wow. What a picture. Church, I can't pastor you. We, your elders, can't pastor you if we don't know who you are, if we don't know you're part of us. I can't pastor. I'm not called to pastor the universal church. We're not called to shepherd the, the, the invisible flock of God. We're called to shepherd the ones who have said, I want you to shepherd me. So you make my job, you make our elders' job more easy when you say, I'm with you. Next, Covenant Church membership provides the exclusive avenue for Christians to rightly exercise their God-given authority. God has entrusted, through his word, through his spirit, specific authority to the local church. And this can't be practiced on a universal scale. It has to be practiced in a local scale. Galatians 1.9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What's one of the authorities of the local church? To set the doctrine for the church. The pastors are called to guard that doctrine, but it is ultimately up to the congregation to set it, to say, this is what we believe. You can only do that in covenant together. You can only do that by agreeing together and saying this is what you believe. It's why we so often in our elder prayer and in our my sermons reference our core beliefs and core values because we have said as a church this is what we believe. The the collective, the 350, about to be 354 members of our local church have said we believe these things. We set the doctrine. Number two, you Have the authority to admit members upon credible testimonies of faith. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, the northern part of Israel, with his disciples. He's like, who do the people say that I am? They're like, oh, they have all these answers. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is God's gospel, Jesus says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples not to to tell no one that he was the Christ. You say, well, does this mean that whatever we speak is true? No, this is narrow authority that's been given to the local church that when people make credible testimonies of faith, we then, as the congregation, the church of God built on the, the testimony of the apostles and the prophets, that's what he means, it's built on Peter, it's built on this testimony, we then, the local church, get to say, you are with us. We believe you. We've examined your life. We've seen your testimony. We've heard your love for Jesus, and you are with us. And because we will treat that person like a Christian, it's as if we're treating them like a Christian in heaven. And so it's the, the keys to the kingdom fit the front door of the church, but the keys to the kingdom also fit the back door of the church. Go back to Matthew 18, where we already looked at verse 17, that if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church, right? And then put him out of the church. Jesus uses very similar language in Matthew 18 that he did in Matthew 16. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, that, man, verses 19 and 20, people use in all kinds of contexts. The context that Jesus says these words is the context of local church discipline. Only. So when we say when two or three are gathered together, there I am among them, what he is talking about is the local church and that the local church, groups of people that have come together to covenant around a shared doctrine and a shared mission that we then have the authority to not only admit members, but to also dismiss them, to say by your actions or by your testimony, we can no longer affirm that you are one of us. It's it's never something we want to do. But it's something in Scripture we're commanded to do, and we're going to see how we do it further in December as we go through 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. So could I just take a moment? I'm just bearing my soul here for a second. Can I take a moment and share just some personal convictions that I hold that are derived from these doctrinal truths that the congregation, the local church, holds the authority, the keys to the kingdom to admit and dismiss members? This is me speaking right now. This is Ryan sharing with you kind of how I have progressed in my thinking about the importance of the local church based off this idea. I'm gonna give you three, just quickly. No matter how large a church grows, it is the congregation who holds the keys to the front and back door and should take that solemn responsibility seriously. I don't care how big our church gets. We should never give away the solemn authority to say we have to evaluate people who are going to be admitted to our church and dismissed from our church. Number two, no matter how large a church grows, they need to have the ability to meet together in one place. Let me just tell I mean and look, I have friends who, wonderful friends who pastor multi-site churches and wonderful friends who pastor uh, multi-service churches, and, and I am all for them doing whatever their convictions are. I believe our church should not get any bigger than the room in which we can meet. Because if we get bigger than the room in which we can meet, how can we then as one assembly do the things that the Bible is instructing us to do? Becomes obviously much more difficult. And so we, when the ox was in the ditch during COVID, we did it for a little while. But as soon as we could all get back in the room, we all got back in the room because there are some things that we need to do as an assembly, as those who gather together Number three, and this is going to strike at some of you, so I want you to hear my pastoral heart. Members should take every corporate gathering of the local church seriously, including and possibly especially members' meetings. I think our largest gathering of members should be four times a year when we gather on third Sundays for members' meetings. Some of you say, well, we just trust the pastors. Why do I need to show up? Because you're the members. If you want to know why we're moving why we're recommending moving the admission, the admission of new members out of Sunday morning and into members meetings is because we think it's something that you're supposed to practice your God-given authority over. Last, Matthew 28, which we claim as the mission of the church, right? Jesus talks about authority. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, This is the great commission. It is the mission of every local church. The local church is the agent of the mission of God. It's the agent of the kingdom of God. The local church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. It is the local church that develops pastors, not seminaries, It is the local church that sends missionaries, not mission-sending organizations. It is the local church that plants churches, not church-planting organizations. Now, we may utilize the resources of seminaries and mission agencies and church-planting agencies because we are partial owners of them as Southern Baptists. However, we should never give to them the authority to do that which the local church has the authority to do. If a church is planted, it is because a local church has planted it. If a missionary is sent, it is because a local church has sent them. If a pastor is raised up within a congregation, it is because the congregation raised them up. We, you, together have this authority. So what? We must be diligent in our personal and corporate pursuit of covenant church membership because through it we display the glory and gospel of God. Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer of John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, (laughs) that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfect, Perfectly one, so that the word may, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Church membership is both a diligent, uh, is both a diligent personal pursuit and a diligent corporate pursuit because it matters, because through it we reflect the glory of God and we most clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to non-members gathered with us. Maybe you're a non member because you're just like visiting. You're like, this is strange. (laughs) Maybe you've been visiting a few weeks and this is very telling for you. Come to Connect Class, I talk about these things in there. Maybe you've been sitting in these pews for years. I have an invitation to you join the church. I mean this. I say this in love. Hear me in in great love for you. Some of you I love dearly because I've known you for years. Join the church. And, And again, hear this in love. If you can't join this one, find one you can. You may never hear another pastor say that. You say, Pastor, are you telling me to leave the church? If you can't join this one, then what I'm saying is for your benefit, It would be better for you to find one that you can. A place where you can say, I do believe what those people... You're not going to hurt my feelings if you say, I don't agree with your core beliefs and core values. Let me help you find a church where you would. So that you can then be a covenant member of that place. So that you can then do these things that we're clearly instructed in Scripture to do. Listen, I say this every time I teach Connect class. We don't sell timeshares here. I have never tried to convince anyone to become a member of this church. I, I don't get a bonus every time we present members, okay? That's not the way this works. We, we want you to be a member of a healthy local church that you can join in with not only believing their doctrine, but understanding their mission clearly and be able to fulfill it. So I invite you, to join the church. If you want information about how to join the church, come, find, come talk to our Connect team. We can talk to you about our process. And yes, there's a process you don't just walk down an aisle and be like, I'm in. That's how we got into the trouble we got into in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. was people just signed a card, and they're like, I'm in. Well, no, there's a process. It's not all that long, but there is a process because we have to rightly evaluate your testimony in life. To members, we must make appropriate changes. This is actually calling us to do something. We must make appropriate changes to the way we think about and practice the right exercise of Christ's authority given to the church so that we best reflect his glory and the proclamation of his gospel. This is why we are recommending the changes that we're recommending to our constitution and bylaws as it relates to members because we think while we have, over the last 15 years or so, done fairly well with thinking about covenant church membership, we think we can think even better about it and implement these changes even better as we love the local church, as we prize our membership in the local church, not as we look at other churches and say, y'all aren't Christians. That's not what we do. We affirm the Christianity of any gospel preaching church, and I am so thankful for them, whether they structure themselves like us or not. But for us, for what we believe the scripture is teaching, for the way that we want to practice, we need to take serious membership, and the authority that God has granted our church as we think about who is a member here and who is not. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your word is is clear. and, And while it may just really stir up long-standing issues in some, and and while this may seem counter-cultural or even counter-productive to growing a church for others, and and, and there may be some people in this room that even have felt abused by church membership in the past, and they're just like, I'll never submit myself to that again. God, would you do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do to soften hearts, to change minds, to help us? Oh, God, we need your help. Let this be a church that understands what the Scripture says and seeks to apply it as best as we can because by it we demonstrate our obedience to the one who gave himself up for his church. Thank you, God, for this local church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?